today on Ag News Daily. Because that's what one of the main um, beginning sort of GMOs that sort of came out was all the herbicide tolerance to make farmers' lives easier. Um, so you can spray herbicide on your crop, but your crop survives and everything else dies. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, what do you know for today's hashtag Tech Tuesday? Well, Delaney, I'm really excited for our Tech Tuesday interview that we're going to be featuring later on in the podcast. I don't think we've ever, or at least since I've been here, we haven't had anyone, you know, who's in Australia to talk to. I think the furthest we've ever had is someone joining us from Canada. So I'm really excited talking about CRISPR-Cas9 technology, but I'll leave all that for the interview. But one thing that I'm really excited about today, Delaney, is the weather, because here in Lubbock, it is really sunny, not a cloud in the sky. I think the high for today is like 78, something like that. So it's a pretty good mid-March day for me. Well, that certainly is nice. We're not getting such nice weather here in Des Moines. We got a little bit of light snow dusting yesterday. It's a little chilly, a little cold today, so it doesn't feel like spring. And actually, I don't know about you, Ashton, but on Sunday, you know, we sprang forward an hour. That always messes me up for a few days. Yes, I completely forgot about that. And so the next day I was feeling real loopy. And so I didn't even realize it until yesterday afternoon that we had sprang forward. I forgot about it. And so I, I was like, that's that's why I feel so weird is because we sprang forward an hour. Yes. Uh, yep. I always hate that. It's the worst time. I mean, it's nice because you gain an hour of or a couple hours of uh, sunlight as the days start to get a little longer, but you lose that initial hour of sleep. So it always takes me a few days to get over it. Yeah, but I am really excited for the summer days that are quickly approaching us. I can't believe that we're already mid-March of 2021. That just seems super crazy. It certainly does. Yep, you're right. But Ashton, let's get to some news for today. What are you watching on the wires? Well, a lot has been going on in the ethanol industry for the past several weeks or so, and uh, that remains true for the Kansas City metro area because E15 can now be sold year-round in the city. The EPA recently announced the removal of the low-read vapor pressure gasoline requirements in the area. Growth Energy CEO Emily Score speaking to the Agricultural Business Council of Kansas City before the announcement was made provided a snapshot of E15 near Kansas City. In a statement, she said that allowing year-round sales of E15 will help strengthen clean energy efforts and provide access to more affordable fuels. And Growth Energy has supported the efforts of Missouri and Kansas members who have worked for three years to modify the requirements. The American Coalition for Ethanol is also pleased with the announcement. ACE Senior Vice President and Market Development Director Ron Lamberty says the announcement is positive for consumers who will access, who will have access to cleaner fuels and retailers who have seen other parts of the country increase profits by adding A15 to their state. So great news for our ethanol producers and some exciting stuff going on in the Kansas City metro area. 
And that certainly is Ashton, and it's supportive, hopefully long-term, for our ethanol markets who have definitely needed a boost in sales since the shutdown of COVID-19. But I want to switch tracks here and talk about wheat sales coming out of Russia. As we've talked about on the podcast, we have seen Russia implement a few different tariff systems to try and control their wheat exports. We've seen a wheat export tariff go into place that went on in uh, mid-February. We have seen that slow down exports just a little bit in Russia, but now Russian officials have just announced they're going to replace that flat tax with what they're calling a floating duties here just weeks before their harvest. They said this new system is basically going to be a little bit in the dark for exporters. They're not really going to know how much they'll pay until the cargo has actually sailed to its destination. Uh, which could take months or weeks after the tender is actually made. Don't really understand exactly how this is going to work, um, but it's going to be a changing floating system where I don't under I don't really understand fully who is setting this tax. I mean, it's the Russian government to some extent, but I don't know uh, what agency or who determines it. But they're still continuing to try and tamp down domestic bread prices and food prices, and now going to switch to a floating tax system. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. It certainly will be interesting, Delaney, and kind of along that same vein, something that we're going to have to be looking out on is Japan setting higher tax tariffs on U.S. beef with imports for the fiscal year ending this month expected to exceed the maximum amount set under the Japan-U.S. trade agreement that took effect last year. It will be the first time the safeguard measure has been imposed on U.S. beef since August of 2017. Japan had imported an accumulated 233,112 tons of U.S. beef by the end of February, just shy of the maximum 242,000 tons agreed for this fiscal year. And with this safeguard measure, the tariff would raise to 38.5% from 25.8% for 30 days, adding that lower imports from Australia due to drought had boosted the demand for U.S. beef. Officials at Japan's Agriculture and Finance Ministries declined to comment on the report, but noted that the import figure for early March will be released tomorrow. And if the accumulated import volume exceeds the maximum level, then the safeguard measure would kick in on Thursday. So we're going to have to keep an eye out on this developing story. We certainly are, Ash, and I'm glad you brought that up. I have been kind of watching that on the back burner as well. Another story I've been watching on the back burner dealing with the markets, Ashton, has been this lean hog market. We saw today June lean hogs broke above $100 for the first time in just about a year here. So we'll be talking and following this story a little bit more. From what I can tell right now, it's largely been tied to African swine fever and China's increased appetite or continued appetite, really, I should say, for pork. We also saw that news followed up today by USDA announcing a rather large export grain sale of 1.156 million metric tons of U.S. corn headed to China for the 2021 marketing year, which again, points to the demand that we've been seeing uh, as they continue to rebuild their hog herds. So we're seeing it 
really benefit right now on two fronts, both on the U.S. grain side and U.S. pork side, as we continue to see China slowly rebuilding that hog herd. Well, Delaney, I just have one more story to talk about today, and it's talking about carbon continues to be a large topic of discussion. In fact, I think we're going to feature some things about carbon in a summit next week that I'm going to be a part of. So folks, keep an eye out on that. But for today, I'm just going to leave it up to this piece of news from Bayer Crop Science. As they say, they plan to substantially expand their carbon initiative incentive program for this season. According to Lisa Streck, who is the carbon program grower lead. Last year, Streck says the company saw a lot of interest in the program from growers and had a wait list of farmers wanting to join. Streck added that the company received positive feedback on how simple its carbon program was for farmers to implement. In fact, last year, the company compensated farmers $10 per acre or provided product discounts for implementing no-till or strip-till or for planting cover crops on acreage where those practices had not been used before. Strike says these aspects of the Bayer plan are the same for 2021, but they're looking for opportunities to add new practices in the future. And to help with that, the company has developed a farmer-based carbon advisory panel to provide feedback on the program and offer recommendations for changes and additions. Farmers wanting to participate in the Bayer program need to sign up for a Climate Field View account. And through that account, farmers in the program can log data about their practices and their claims are then verified by satellite imagery. So again, carbon sequestration, I think, is just going to continue to really just take over the market is what it's really looking like to me because I, I haven't seen a, a cease in you know these kinds of conversations. So it's just going to be interesting to see the development of this variety of programs. Yeah, Ashton, I'm going to be interested to see what comes out of those meetings. That I think, it, is it next week you're going to be sitting in on some discussions about carbon and carbon credits and how that system is going to work? Yes, it's going to be early next week. So I'm excited to get to know a little bit more about, you know, what these systems are going to look like, who's going to be buying these credits and all that good stuff. And can't wait to share it with the audience. Absolutely. And it's something I think you're right. You know, this is not necessarily something I think we're going to see go away. I think just like cover crops have slowly made their foothold in the industry, I think carbon is uh, here to stay as well. But Ash, should I tell you what I'm all out of news for today other than chatting markets? What do you say? Let's get into it. All right, let's do that. And as we look across the board today, we saw grains mostly higher. Starting off here in the May corn contract up four and three quarter cents to close it at 5.54 and a quarter. We saw after the announcement of that export sales number, corn got a little higher uh, before ending the day just slightly higher. Dece new crop corn down a penny today though to close at 4.77 and three quarters. In soybeans, the May contract three and three quarters cents higher today to close at 14.23 and a quarter. The Nove up a penny to close at 12.45. Chicago wheat having a mostly neutral day today as the May contract added just two cents to close at 647. The July unchanged to close at 637. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets today. April live cattle 92.5 cents lower to close at 118.20. The June down 32.5 cents to close at 121.45. Feeder also lower today as the March contract shed 45 cents to close at 136.57. 
half the April down 60 cents to close at 143.32. Today's winners, uh, definitely the lean hog market as we saw the April contract creeping closer to $100. It closed $2.35 higher to end at $92.90, but it wasn't until the June contract today that we saw it actually hit and close above $100. Closing at $2.05 higher to close at $100.97 and a half cents. And I was pulling up the chart here, Ashton, just really quickly so I could have my numbers correct. We have not seen um, lean hogs touch this high levels in over a year. So certainly some excitement today for the lean hog market. However, in the dairy market, we didn't see quite as much excitement as we saw the April contract shed 13 cents to close at 17.39, the May down 8 cents to close at 18.10. Without further ado, Ashton, let's kick it over to our conversation with Karen Massel to talk CRISPR technology. Joining us all the way from Australia is Karen Massel, who is a postdoctoral, I, I can't obviously remember because I'm stumbling over my words here, Karen, so you might have to reintroduce yourself to us, but you are doing a postdoctoral fellowship from the sounds of it. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So uh, I'm Dr. Karen Massel. I'm actually a Canadian who moved out to Australia to do my PhD, um, and I'm now working on a grant that's... Um, called Serial Blueprints for a Water-Limited World. And um, as a postdoc, my job is involved in trying to increase the genetic gains in the crop sorghum and barley and try to improve their drought tolerance. And we're going to get into that a little bit more later on, Karen, talking about the CRISPR-Cas9 technology and what you've been doing on that scene. But tell us a little bit more about your background. How did you decide to go into this line of study? Yeah, um, well, as a, I was a Canadian and I was in, I was doing a biopharmaceutical undergraduate program and I realized I, I didn't really want to go into the pharmaceutical industry, but I loved genetics and I loved biochemistry um, and I didn't really want to be doing animal work. And uh, although my university at the University of Ottawa didn't have a ton of plant work, I, I did meet up with a couple of professors there and I fell in love with the CRISPR-Cas9 technology and I wanted to apply it to real crops um, rather than just working on model species. And I, uh, I signed up to do a PhD and I was able to get a scholarship to come out here uh, working with Professor Ian Godwin, who is sort of the, the guru of sorghum transformation. And um, I've loved it ever since. And now I'm just sort of known as the, the CRISPR person. So I, I do a lot of genome editing and, and I'm, I really enjoy it. Well, Karen, I'm glad that you're known as the CRISPR person, because when we're talking about GMOs or, you know, modern plant breeding, those kind of technologies, a lot of the times we're talking about the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So why don't you tell us more about that technology? Because although I've heard that buzzword, I don't exactly know how the technology works. So how about you educate us on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a really great technology. So in the past, plant breeding has been done through uh, sort of the, the conventional breeding strategies such as crossing. And it's also been done through uh, chemical mutagenesis where you basically treat the seeds with some kind of chemical or you irradiate them and that creates random mutations and that helps increase your genetic diversity in your crops. And then you select for the ones that you like for either your yield traits or for your quality traits. Um, CRISPR-Cas9 technology has the capabilities to, to basically do what EMS does, which is your mutagenesis and create random or create mutations, but this time they're actually not at random. 
um, we do it in a very targeted way. So I can use this technology, I can go into the genome, make a very small change that's um, it'd be indistinguishable from a natural mutation. And then I actually can remove the components that I've put in, making the crop not GM in, at the end, but I've created a mutation um, in the desired location. Um, it's not simple, but it, it, it can be done. And, and it's been shown that there are many applicable genes that we can use this technology on that have been very beneficial for um, throughout different crops. So Karen, the research that you've been doing, you mentioned a little bit earlier, was geared towards, I don't remember the exact phrase you used, but um, dealing with technology, developing crops like sorghum and barley in a water For a, long, a water limited world, yes. Water limited, to... thank you. Mm -hmm. in, in a general sense, what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, a lot of the issues facing that the world is facing due to climate change is going to be about uh, uh, the unpredictability of rainfall, um, especially out here in Australia, where obviously we're known for our deserts and we, we don't have very nutritious soil for a lot of the regions. And we struggle with uh, low rainfall. It's, it's very hot and very, um, and very dry. So we need our crops to be very hardy and to survive when there's less rainfall, or at least when we, um, if we can't predict it as well, we need it to be able to sort of tolerate large spans of, of low rainfall. Um, and we, um, the project that I'm on is doing this from more of a crop architecture standpoint. So we're trying to sort of reduce the canopy biomass and reduce the tillering number um, and try to increase sort of the photosynthesis rate to try and push. Um, so we have a, a better drought tolerance, especially post-anthesis. So during sort of the important grain fill for the cereal crops that we're working on. So Karen, I think that a lot of folks, you know, those specifically not really involved in the agriculture industry are kind of apprehensive to gene editing and, and plant breeding. And I think that there's kind of just a disconnect there. So backing it up with some science, you know, what does this mean from, you know, a biosecurity and a safety standpoint? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think this is something that often gets miscommunicated um, I think, and I think a lot of people actually don't have an issue with, in the, the real sense of what a genetically modified uh, food crop is or, or a crop in general, but they more have an issue with herbicide tolerance because um, that's what one of the main um, beginning sort of GMOs that sort of came out was all the herbicide tolerance to make farmers' lives easier. Um, so you can spray herbicide on your crop, but your crop survives and everything else dies. Um, this technology... Um, is indistinguishable from a natural mutation. So you wouldn't be able to, to tell from just sort of the evolution of the plant growing um, within a field of, if you plant out a, a whole plot of, of wheat, for example, you're going to be accumulating hundreds of mutations, if not thousands, just because of natural mutagenesis um, that's occurring um, in our, it's the same reasons like why people get cancers. Your body just creates mutations as, as cells divide. Um, so this technology is indistinguishable from that. And we can actually make it be a non-GMO through um, segregating out anything that we've actually put in. Um, so although it's non-GMO, I'm, I'm definitely pro-GM. Um, so I'm not trying to say that GMOs are bad, but this technology does reduce the risk factors for those things. Um, the main risks with GMOs is, is often actually um, the transfer of genetic material to other species. So it's through like pollen transfer um, and if you were able to make a plant that's more invasive or something like that, 
Um, but a lot of the traits that people are working on wouldn't um, actually be, be beneficial for weeds to, to grow. I mean, the stuff that most people are working on is trying to increase the plant's uh, ability to produce yields and stuff like that, which uh, weeds aren't really, isn't useful for weeds. Yeah. And Karen, I, I think you've hit on a lot of good points, but full picture, when you look at, you know, GMOs, CRISPR technology, et cetera, there's a lot of things in the pipeline right now that are all trying to achieve a similar goal. You know, we, we have to deal with climate change to some extent, but we also have an ever-growing population and the nine or nine to 10 billion people by 2050, I think is a common goal that folks like yourself are working towards. What do you see as being the solution for that? Is it just a combined approach with all of these different technologies or is there something else we should be looking into? I definitely think a combined approach is going to be the way and that's sort of um, accepting all the new technologies and using them. So using stuff like the biotechnological tools that have been created um, because they are so efficient, we can Instead of breeding for 10 years, we can do something in one generation. And that's a huge leap that we can use. And then we use breeding to actually get those into all the alert, the elite germplasm that you can grow it in. And then you can use all your robots to um, do really great phenotyping and to get out to the field. And I feel like there's so much new technology that's coming out. And I think the the more that people can accept some of this new technology and, and at least test it out and trial it um, will be extremely beneficial. Um, and I think it will help us use grow crops on lands that we we previously wouldn't be able to do, um, as well as obtain greater yields. So, Karen, in Australia specifically, your your office for that kind of regulation they deregulated gene editing technology back in 2019, but genetically modified crops or genetically edited crops are not yet grown in Australia. So when we're talking about approval kind of on a global standpoint, because I mean, all of these scientists are kind of working together, you know, to tackle that big issue. Do you think that we're going to have to have a, you know, uniform approval, you know, throughout the world to really get this technology moving? Yeah, that's another great point. Um, I think People are resistant to grow CRISPR-edited plants, even though they haven't been deemed GM here, just because Australia exports a lot of its grains. And if we can't export them to uh, Europe, which is one of our biggest markets, it can really complicate things. Um, so definitely, if there was a, a sort of a, a worldview that we were all okay with it, or we all had specific regulations in place, it would make things easier. Although I, I really don't see that happening. Um, I, there's too many too many countries with too many opinions, and, and that's fine. I think one of the issues um, that Australia is facing right now is that although they have deregulated it, they haven't really set clear guidelines for how to prove that the plant is not transgenic. So that's the issue that we're running into is we have these genome-edited plants that we believe um, are, are genetically modified because we've actually removed the CRISPR technology from the plants, but um, there's no real system in place to confirm that. And as a, I believe there was a case in the States where there was some cattle that was found with a selective marker gene after they were deemed to be non-genetically modified, but CRISPR edited. Um, and that sort of created a big backlash. And we would like to avoid that. We don't want to be doing something wrong. Um, so we sort of need, uh, I think, a more clear rules, something maybe more like how the States has or how Canada has, um, where everything is um, sort of looked at before it goes out. That certainly makes a lot of sense, Karen. And uh, before I let you go, I know you've done quite a bit of research. Are there any maybe um, 
less scientific-based articles or publishings that you've written for folks that have more questions about CRISPR technology, but maybe don't have a huge science background? Oh, I have a great book to offer. Um, So my boss, Professor Ian Godwin, actually wrote a book called Good Enough to Eat. And it is part his autobiography, and but mostly it deals with sort of how genetically, um, how GMO sort of started and, and what's their big limitations and, and maybe why the industry sort of got held back and, and why there's a bit of public issues with the technology. But um, it really talks about the technology and, and, and how beneficial it can be. And it's, it's written for, for sort of everybody. It's a really great book. Um, that would be the one thing I could think of off the top of my head. Fantastic. Well, Karen, again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to chat CRISPR technology. It's very fascinating, the line of work you're in. Yes, thank thank you so much for having me. Thanks again there to Dr. Karen Massel for coming on and talking to us about CRISPR technology. I think it's quite interesting how that technology works, but also interesting how it kind of ties into our discussions about climate change and sustainability. And I think that a lot more people, you know, should be educated around, you know, this technology and what it means for sustainability. Yeah, certainly, Ashton. Sustainability is, uh, folks, not a conversation that's going away anytime soon. So you might as well join in on that discussion and be part of the conversation, which we're continuing to be here on the Ag News Daily podcast. Check out any of our past episodes at agnewsdaily.com. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.